0: Welcome to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts. I'm your host, Doug Peters, and along with me today from the Zamboni Company is Marty Elliott. Today, we're going to be having a chat with Henry Boucher. He's a legend of hockey from Minnesota, a little town called War Road, Minnesota. Henry, welcome.
1: Glad to have you today. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I have uh, was very fortunate to get to watch you play hockey, and uh, I'm honored to have the ability to uh, chat with you today and talk about uh, growing up, your career, and uh, what you're doing these days. Um, I was wondering, since you grew up in Warroad, how has Warroad changed, and how has it stayed the same um, from when you were younger?
1: Well, it's still, uh, you know, I mean, it's cold as heck up there. We went from uh, skating on the river to an indoor arena, but it didn't have artificial ice. We skated on natural ice through my whole high school career up there and it wasn't until probably the late 70s when they had artificial ice put in and the old barn and then in 1992 they raised enough money to build a new arena uh, along with uh, another small arena called the Olympic arena but you know that uh, hockey's changed quite a bit over the years you don't see kids skating out on a river very much anymore you don't you don't see them carrying their bags and their sticks down the street in town. You, um, you know, you see parents driving them to the rink for practice, and and they'd get their hour on the ice, and then they're done. They're playing Nintendo or some other type of game, and they're inside and they're really focused on that sort of thing. Uh, very rarely do you see guys like T.J. Oshie and Brock Nelson come out of a small town like Warroad that, uh, you know, that produces such a heavy amount of Olympians. There's eight of us that came out of that little town. There's, uh, you know, I think there's 90 division one players. Um, and then you have all of the pros that uh, came out of there. It's, uh, you know, it's an amazing little town, but you have to be committed. You have to, you know, enjoy the outdoors, enjoy the game. And, and, uh, you know, you don't see that, although a lot of people are moving up there because of our traditions and and culture up there, uh, our hockey culture, and, uh, uh, you know, there's more outdoor activities with snowmobiles, four-wheelers, ice fishing, cross-country skiing. Um, you know, we try to provide free ice time for everybody that's growing up, and and, um, you know, we have volunteer coaches starting at a young age, and, you know, so it's there. We give them the opportunity, but very seldom you see somebody like T.J. Oshie or Brock that really stands out and is a rink rat.
0: It's interesting that you mention uh, Brock Nelson. I've followed his career just a little bit. I believe he was the Um, Final first-round draft pick by the Islanders the year that the draft was held out here in Los Angeles. And he is the grandson, if I am correct, of Billy Christian, who played on the 1960 Olympic team, a gold medal winner. uh, And his uncle, Dave, played on the 1980 Olympic team uh, for USA gold medal winners. Um, So quite the family pedigree.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it, it, uh, just runs in the family It uh, you know, you get families like that. And, and, uh, uh, you know, of course, Billy and Roger Christian, their, their brother, uh, Guinea played in the 56 games. He won a silver medal in Cortina, Italy. And, you know, it just kind of carried on from there. And Cal was quite a negotiator. Cal Marvin, I'm talking about the godfather of hockey up there that uh, was able to uh, bring in the national teams, the the Olympic teams on Olympic years. He brought in, you know, the Norwegians. And, you know, this is a senior hockey team that, uh, and, you know, his, I guess his uh, pedigree, you know, he lived and died hockey and was well-connected and was able to do that. So as a kid, you know, gave us a lot of incentive to be at the arena, scrape the old rink off, you know, between periods, and, uh, you know, watch these players that were, you know, were uh, international heroes, you know, for us, and and it really gave us an incentive to, to watch all of these uh, players come through, even, you know, from foreign countries, the Swedes, I think the Norwegians, the Finns came through there, the Czechs, You know, so we're able to uh, see all of that and really use that as a springboard for, you know, our career.
0: Well, it's amazing in a town that's that small that there were two companies of such stature. One still exists, the Marvin uh, Brothers, uh, with their windows, and uh, Christian Brothers Sticks, which uh, I spent a little bit of time Uh, swinging around on an ice rink when I was growing up uh, back in Minnesota a a long time ago.
1: Yeah, all of that growing up really, you know, I mean, you had people like Stan Makeda, Bobby Hall come up there, you know, to get their sticks or get their patterns fixed. and So you're able to see all of these people. And and like I said, it really gives you an incentive to, you know, uh, gives you a platform to to really excel at, you know, at the game, and and uh, it um, it was a great place to grow up. I um, raised my family up there as well, and uh, now I'm here in the Minneapolis area. But um, I still go up there. I have siblings up there. I've I've got uh, a daughter and grandkids and stuff up there. So I I try to get up there three or four times a week year. Well, that's awesome.
0: Henry, can you tell us a little bit about the experience you had in the state high school hockey tournament? I know for me as a spectator, uh, I was lucky enough when I was a sophomore in high school to see Mike Ramsey play as a senior uh, and lost to that dreaded team that uh, of cake eaters that you guys did as well uh, <laughs> back when, when you played. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about your experience with the high school tournament, how your team got there and uh, the battles that uh, you faced.
1: Um, yeah, I played high school hockey for five years after the state Bantam champion 1964, which we won. Um, you know, went into high school and kind of got my feet wet the first year as a defenseman, and you know, started building, but we never quite made it. We thought we were going to win it, maybe when I was a sophomore because we had the State Bantam Championship, you know, a few years before that. But, you know, as, as players get older, you you change a little bit. We didn't have the mix. We didn't have the, you know, the attitude of, of really winning. We were kind of arguing amongst ourselves. And and it just never worked out until I was a senior. There was only two seniors uh, on the team. And then we had a really good Bantam team come up and uh you know it all, we all mesh together and uh we were ranked pretty much uh number 1 in the state at that time and expected to play in the state tournament which is the biggest tournament you know probably in the world for that for that age group because they draw 19,000 to 20,000 people a game you know for these there's eight sections that come out there's a uh, double a and then there's a single a the smaller schools are the single a they don't draw quite as many but the double a's uh i, I tell you it was it's a really amazing to see how many people uh are at those games and uh people take their vacations and they all come up from florida they'll come up from uh, phoenix or whatever you know me, here at the state tournament for a week and uh so it was really a blessing for for us to be um you know ranked number one or number two all year we ended up losing our arch rivals in the section tournament rozo and we but we had a chance to go through the back door there was nobody representing section three so section seven and section eight rummer runners up were able to play and uh Doug Palazzari was playing with Evelyph. He's the executive director at the Hockey Hall of Fame now. Um, and that game was just up and back, up and back, up and back. Just people hanging from the rafters. It was one of the best games I've ever played in my life. And it was just a flurry down there, a flurry at the other end and we were tied, went into overtime and and then I ended up scoring with no time left on the clock. And they counted it. And it really pisses Doug Palazzari off to this day.
0: I'll have to I'll have to ask him about that because
1: he's, he's just, gonna be
0: he's gonna be on a podcast with us next week. And I'll just so gonna, so.
1: Every time I see him I just rip the shit out of him. <laughs>
0: Uh, that, that, that sounds like something that I would do, uh, Henry. I, I get the great opportunity to uh, go back and forth with our uh, folks at our Canadian plant about the 1980 Olympic team and, and how they did. And Marty's shaking his head right now. But that, that's great. And it, it's, a, it's a different tournament now, uh, the State High School Hockey Tournament. I've tried to explain to people, and I remember we used to uh, beg for tickets. And down in the cities, it was hard to come by. So we would reach out to the rink operators, uh, managers up in uh, the Iron Range. Paul Forland from Hoyt Lakes. I don't know if you know that name or not, but uh, I, Paul, I know the
1: name, but I can't. I don't can't remember. It, I'm yet, I meet so many people. So.
0: Oh yeah, and he used to get us tickets, and I can. I mean, they're up in the rafters, but we didn't care. It was uh, it was a great tournament. I'm disappointed that they've gone to the 16 teams. Uh, but I understand if, but changes. but um, give us a little bit more about the when you got to the tournament and how you guys did and uh, where you guys ended up in the tournament that year.
1: Well, actually, let me start with this. We have a we had a um, quarter round, we had a semifinal, and then we had the finals. So we had to travel by school bus from warro two and a half hours down to play a game on a, I I think it was on a uh, Tuesday night. Then you get back at, at 11, 1130, 12 o'clock and then they had to go to school the next day. And then you had a day off and then you go play the quarterfinals the same way. And then on Saturday you went down there again to play the finals, which we lost. And then we ended up having to. Travel three and a half hours down to Hibbing on Monday to play that game So we were tired, you know, we were tired and Exhausted Uh, it was exhilarating. We finally made it back home and then rode the school bus down here for seven Seven and a half hours stayed at the St. Paul Hotel They that year the they were renovating the Civic Center. So we played at the Metropolitan Sports Center and uh, it was pretty amazing it uh you know it was warm the ice was was different um you know the the people were really really excited because there was more tickets available and um you know it was packed house every every night every day and um you know they kind of isolated us uh you know because of the press and this and that but you know we were there to win the tournament and which we did we lost in overtime to Udina. that's where the cake eaters came from by the way
0: yes um, it was it, it was something that as a kid growing up in south minneapolis uh you uh you just didn't really care for them because they're usually the the rich privileged kids and uh when you got older it was the place you strived to live uh, lower taxes and Uh, better schools than the city of Minneapolis had. But uh, I I understand your disdain for them and hopefully it's mellowed over the years like mine has.
1: Well, it has and you, you know, going to the state tournament like this each and every year, I had, uh, you know, I had my book on display down there. I sold it, you know, I had a booth there for about four years going through that, both boys and girls tournaments and uh, did very well. Talk to a lot of people. In fact, I talked so much one day that I lost my voice. I mean, there's just so many people coming by the booth, shaking hands, buying books, buying pictures, and you know, visiting about old times. And you know, it's old home week. It's like a reunion each and every year that you go to that thing. And you seem like you run into people that you haven't seen for so long. And uh, it's uh, it's really a treat. Now,
0: Henry, one of the things that they didn't do back when you played in the high school hockey tournament—they didn't have the hair flow contest that they—they've had the last several years. How do you think you would have fared since uh, you're famous for having worn a headband for your years in the NHL?
1: Well, I—I I have no idea. You know, it was—you uh, know—we were. That was the least of our worries, I think, when we came down here, is is you wanted to look nice. You know, we were, uh, you know, in suit and tie for the banquet, opening banquet, and, you know, got interviewed and stuff, and we skated, and and then we were pretty isolated. We really didn't go anywhere or do much. We stayed at the St. Paul Hotel and busted over uh, to the Met when our game was about to come up. And... uh, in fact we played Minneapolis Southwest that first game and won that four to three. And then we our nemesis from Roseville, we ended up playing them in the semifinals and beat them out. So that was a big feather to have. But you know, it was it's probably one of the highlights of my my whole career is playing in the Minnesota State Tournament. You have no idea as a young, how much um, you know you appreciate just being there and And joining all the festivities and playing in front of 19, 20,000 people, that's really remarkable. Yeah,
0: I was lucky enough. That was back when my dad worked at the Met when that took place. And uh, I always remember those times fondly. And we're hoping to have Reed Larson, another former Red Wing and uh, former Minnesotan, uh, on to do a podcast with him. He uh, graduated from Roosevelt High School, as did I, but Reed was a few years Years older, but um let's talk a little bit about the 1970 worlds because you played on that team as well, and that was a gold medal team for the USA. Can you share your experiences with that team?
1: Yeah, after high school, I ended up going and playing in Western Canada. I played with the Winnipeg Jets, and we had uh, Brandon, Estevan, Swift Current, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, and Flyn in that league. And um, It was, you know, we went on a bus trip, we played seven games in nine days, and we slept on the bus pretty much and got box sandwiches, and, you know, I always thought about that as paying your dues, and that's the first time I really experienced the, uh, you know, the loneliness, the, uh, I guess, uh, you know, being an American up there, and you know, the cat calls from the crowd and other players, and not only that being a Native American playing up there, um, and the, the slang and the racism and discrimination that, that, that happened during that type, time period. And you just have to just bite the bullet. And, you know, I, I remember going on a bus um, a couple of times and just going into the bathroom and breaking down. But the teammates, you know, helped me um, through those times. Or there were times I thought about quitting, um, but I couldn't. I had that pride, you know, and so you work through that stuff. And, you know, you just have to realize it's ignorance that, uh, um, you know, that that developed and, and um, you know, they're just trying to get under your skin. Um, but I enjoyed my time up there. Playing the game, learning a lot, playing with better players. I was able to take a leave of absence from uh, Ben Haskins. So uh, said you know Murray Williamson actually talked to him and then said, sure you know take three weeks and then come back and we'll finish the season out. But yeah, that team was um, unique. I was 18 years old then. Played with uh, Herbie Brooks was on that team and George Connick and. Huffer Christensen, uh, you know, Gary Gambucci, and you know, it was the first time I ever been to Europe. So uh we played a couple of games in Switzerland, flew into Bucharest, which is behind the Iron Curtain, which when I give my speeches, these kids don't understand what the Iron Curtain is even. But it was communist country, it was very poor. We had, I think we were there two and a half weeks. Um you know, I think everybody lost some weight because we never got, seemed to get enough food. Um, But it was a wonderful tournament. We we needed to win that to put the United States back in the A bracket in the 71 World Championships and uh, the 72 Olympics. So it was, uh, you know, it was a great tournament. Murray rewarded us by stopping in Rome for three days on the way home. And um the food was absolutely wonderful. And uh, got back to Winnipeg, played uh, played a nine a nine game uh series against uh uh Flint the lost in the ninth game in overtime. And uh and that's north of Winnipeg. We busted up there a couple of times and then we flew up a couple other times, but it was I tell you, it was pretty rowdy up there. I, You didn't know whether you're going to get out of the arena sometimes. But it was it was a great experience. I went back and worked at Marvin Windows in the summertime. I got my draft notice from the United States Army during the Vietnam War at that time. And I just called Murray and said, hey, I got my draft notice. What am I going to do? He goes, don't worry about there's three or four other uh, guys that – then on the same boat, I'll call you back. So he he didn't call me back for a couple of weeks. I was getting worried. So he so I ended up volunteer draft in August of 1970. Went down to Fort Knox, Kentucky, went through basic training. Then I was assigned to the Metropolitan Sports Center um, on a TDY basis with temporary duty with no expense to the government other than my base pay and then we played a 50-game schedule. Um, played in the World Championships uh, in Bern and Geneva. We played in Prague prior to that uh, that tournament, and we ended up in a couple of brutal games up there. Um, we end up with quite a few injuries, and but we did end up beating Czechoslovakia. They really stood up in Prague, but when they got down to Bern, they didn't want to go along the boards, they didn't want to go on the corners and we beat them 'em five to one. And then um then we lost to the Russians and lost to East or uh, West Germany and Swedes and the Finns. And it was, you know, we just didn't have the manpower everybody's taped up and banged up. And so we ended up um uh, I had a Germany, I think, that year, but uh um, you know, that taught us a lot of, of, of lessons, I think, because of the way the, we stayed on this mountaintop with the Russians. And we we're sitting in, in the hotel drinking tea eating these hard rolls and butter and stuff, and the Russians are out there kicking a soccer ball around in the snow, you know, keeping active and stuff. And um, and the way they stretch, the way they train, because they train 11 months of the year then they, uh, you know, lifted weights, they did isometrics, they ran, they played soccer, they played basketball. Um, you know, they would, uh, like I said, practice 11 months a year. Um, they take one month off, and this is a Red Army team, and they would go to the Black Sea for a vacation, and they're all back training again. And if you train six hours a day compared to a team that, practices two hours a day, who in the hell do you think is going to win? You know, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's amazing. They were just so strong. They moved the puck so well. They dissected the ice. They, uh, you know, we would always move forward, move forward, no matter what. If you couldn't get a pass off, he shot it in. The Russians would regroup at center ice and go back into their zone. And then they'd trap you back there, you know, by moving the puck up and, you know, that's where all that, you know, the center ice trap come from and all that stuff. It was just uh, from Tarasov, the, the Russian coach. After we beat the Czechs, we're up, we had to take this tram up to the top of the hotel. And we're sitting in this room. And Murray's, Murray's talking and then and Tarasov walks by. He's like 6'4". And he stops and he looks in there and he walks up to Murray and he picks Murray up by the head and kisses him on the lips. And shocked us all. <laughs> We're laughing because he was so happy because <laughs> we knocked the checks off and they didn't have any, you know, they had a guaranteed first place. But Gary Gambucci said, Jesus Christ, I'm glad he didn't know how to French kiss. <laughs>
0: Uh, that's too funny. Uh, yeah. I, I've had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Gambucci on a few different occasions at some trade shows. And, uh, oh, yeah, but he's a, pretty quick with it. What a wonderful guy. Last name ends in a vowel, so we have a rule that he's got to be Italian, uh, like even and <laughs> I think both.
1: Yeah. But anyway, we ended up, uh, you know, developing our training program at the beginning of the next year. Um, you know, we we ran, we you know, we were at the Athletic Club over there, I can't remember the name of it by the Met. Um, but we had access to, you know, handball, racquetball, basketball. We um used the weight rooms. Then we, you know, we were over there for a couple hours and then we'd go on the ice for like three hours and just, you know, work on our Working on the puck movement, working on the conditioning, and we played another 40, 50 games. So it developed us in, but we had less injuries. We stretched more. We did all of those isometrics. And we were we went into the Olympics pretty healthy. And um, it was uh, pretty, pretty amazing to come out of there with a silver medal.
0: Well, yeah, it, let's talk. Talk a little bit about the 72 Olympics. That's something that the the USA talks about the 60 team, which is the original miracle, I guess. Uh, and I've been blessed enough to meet several of those players uh, and, and, and meet as well as some of the players from the 56 team who won a, a silver medal as well. Uh, right. There's a gen- gentleman who played on both those teams that uh, ran an ice rink out in Framingham, Mass., and then a, a family friend of mine, uh, Dick Meredith, um, who played yeah. on both those teams. Uh, great right. guy. But you you guys, the, the 72 team, I've, I've got a couple of things. I'm going to turn it over to you. One, there is two guys from the metropolis of War Road. Uh, I mean, what are the odds that two guys that would make it to that team, you and Wally Olds, and then to, to win a silver medal when it wasn't really expected? So maybe you can let us know how it uh, played out over there in Japan.
1: Well, we, um, <clears throat> we played every other day. Uh, actually we, we've checked into the Olympic village. We flew back to Tokyo, spent a couple of days there. We played uh Poland there and we played the Czechs there and we ended up uh, one and one. And, um, but we were in, you know, like I said, in, in remarkable shape. Um and with all the stretching that we did prior to each each game and, you know, each event, uh, and throughout the season really helped us stay away from the injuries. But we um we had a play in game against Switzerland. We beat them five three and um and then we lost to the Russians seven two. We lost to the Swedes 3-2, and the Swedes were, you know, they had Hedberg, all these guys on that team. And I played with Tony Bergman. I said, "What happened, to you guys, in the Olympics?" He goes, "Oh my God, there was a couple of guys that fell in love with these Japanese women, and they wanted to, they wanted to leave the team and stay with them. It disrupted the whole team, so." After tying the Russians, the first game started going downhill through, you know, the next game was a little more sloppy. The third game, the Finns beat them, you know, you know, they just went downhill. They ended up out out of the medals, but we ended up beating the the Czechs, we beat uh, the Finns. We beat Poland, so we end up with a three two record. That's what it's all about. It's it's about the about the the camaraderie and the friendship that the Olympics bring together. And um, you know, we had discotheques and you know, we had an area that we could, you know, socialize in. They had four major restaurants that we could eat in either one of them. They had American food. And then they had five, far Eastern food and European food. And, um, you know, we trained hard on our days off and, and, uh, you know, we just didn't have any injuries and, and it really, really made, uh, it really made a difference.
0: Henry, do you still stay in touch with uh, any members of that 72 team?
1: We, we do. I see Murray, uh, once in a while, I, uh, uh Bruce McIntosh, uh we're you know, we we email each other. And we usually we go to Florida once a year, usually in April, but because of the COVID now we uh, decided to wait a year before we go back down there again. So but everybody's you know um everybody's getting old man. I'm sixty nine so um, you're just, I you just you're still
0: a spring chicken, my friend. It's uh <laughs> it, it it's something that I I believe age is a number, and hopefully uh, we all have many years left to go. One of the things that you mentioned was uh, you talked about Herb Brooks, and I'm just wondering what your relationship was with Herb. I know I've seen a few quotes about him and how talented he felt you were, but uh, maybe you can fill us in a little bit about Herb and how uh, things went between you and he.
1: Well, other than being picked on all the time, I really liked him. uh, He— him. He had that ability to it.
0: know how to push people's buttons. I think.
1: <laughs> well, here's what they did. He calls up. I'm. I'm. We're staying in a room with Ozzie O'Neill from Marquette. He's 19. I'm 18. And uh, Donnie Ross from Rosso. George Connick played in that team. And Carl Wetzel was our goalie. And you know they just connive. You know they're trying to. They're trying to play tricks on you all the time. So we had to bring our equipment up to the room so that Herbie gets on the phone, or or maybe it was Don Ross and start talking like this Swedish rep from Sweden. He wanted to compare some equipment. So we said, sure, you know what? You know, we'll go come down and get interviewed and stuff. So well, bring an elbow pad and a shin pad, maybe a glove. And so we each grab some stuff and then we go down and sit in the lobby and Pretty soon, Herbie walks by and goes, oh, what are you guys doing here? Well, we're waiting for this Swedish press guy to come and interview us and take some pictures. Oh, okay. So he takes off, and then pretty soon, Donnie Ross comes by about five minutes later. Oh, what are you guys doing? You know, I mean, after five or six guys, you kind of dawns on, you know, we've been had. You know, just <laughs> stuff like that. That uh, I mean, he hardly dare to go out of your room after, after a while uh,
0: uh henry i want to toss this over to marty he's got a couple of questions that he'd like to ask you he's had a pretty good career in hockey uh as well and uh, way better than i am um, being able to answer those kind ask those kind of questions
2: okay <laughs> thanks thanks doug henry thanks for uh spending the time with us i i have to oh, say that some of these stories you're telling i'm i don't know if you can see my uh because we have our video I don't know, maybe you can't see us. We're just howling in the background. Some of the some of <laughs> these stories you're sharing. I love it. Hey, listen, I want to talk about 1976-77 Colorado Rockies. Uh uh yeah. an individual that I followed, uh, who was drafted second overall for the Kansas City Scouts, Wolf Paymont. You uh, had an opportunity to play with Wolf, I believe. I did, yeah. He's yeah. a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, share with the audience uh, your experience uh, playing with uh, Wolf, and and if you guys, uh, what kind of relationship you guys had? Well, we were
1: neighbors out in, um, you know, in Kansas City and in out in Colorado, and he's just a good guy. He's just very loyal and, uh, you know, hard nosed, um, and love the game. Yeah, and it's just, uh, you know, we we had a a bunch of kind of misfits there with, I mean, players from that nobody else wanted basically, and uh, it was a tough road. It's tough to play like that when you don't have the incentive. But Wilf, you know, came to play every day, and uh, you know, you can tell by his, his stats, you know, playing against uh, you know all of the top lines because he was a starter and and uh, just to uh, a great guy he had uh you know great sense of humor and and um liked to have his pint now and then and and uh i think he ended up in toronto i believe but um yes, after did. the i was in uh when i was in colorado i was on my way out i only played nine games out there and the, the national hockey league knew that i was going to end up suing them because of the dave forbes incident um, you know, cause that went a criminal trial, but it resulted in a hung jury. And I called um uh, Eagleson up. Um, uh, he wouldn't even return my calls, um, wanted some help, you know, as a player, what to do, um, you know, what are what are our options. Um, so we ended up uh having to sue the National Hockey League, the Boston Bruins and Dave Forbes in a civil suit, which took us five years, but we ended up settling that, but uh, uh, they didn't really want me to play. I think when Johnny Wilson was a coach out there in, in Colorado, he uh, um, just came to me and he said, they don't want me to play unless I absolutely have to. So I only played nine games, practiced every day, and I wasn't about to do anything stupid about, uh, you know, because I had a three-year contract yet, so. But anyway, we ended up settling that, and I left there in seventy seven at twenty five
2: yeah, an unfortunate uh, incident, and i'm sure i 'm not sure if Doug's going to talk to you about that, but uh, i do I do remember and uh, i'm not uh, in your age bracket, but I do remember the incident um, because I used to follow with Colorado Rockies, believe it or not, back here in Ontario. I don't know. It was just one of the teams. I, I think it was Wolf Paymont and uh, and some of the other guys. I mean that and that that lineup in 1976-77, there was only three Americans and the rest were Canadians. Did you kind of feel like a Canadian playing uh, with the Colorado Aval- or Rockies back then?
1: No, you don't even you know you don't even notice you know when you when you're playing National Hockey League, like, you don't really care where they're from. You know that's when the uh the Europeans started coming over. Tommy Bergman was one of the first ones, and then Lindstrom from I think Finland, and uh there was a guy I played with Los Angeles, uh Yo, uh what the heck's his name. He had long blonde hair, played out there, great skater, played in the National Hockey League quite a while. But right. um yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, there were mostly Canadians, you know, very few, um, like, Division One players, mostly juniors, you know, coming out of Western Canada and Eastern Canada and the Maritimes, so. Yeah, yeah. I could never understand those guys in the Maritimes. I don't know what they talk to fast. Did <laughs>
2: did they ever make a kiss a cod? <laughs> no. Kind of something to do down east. <laughs> thank, thank God. <laughs> There you go. Back to you, Doug. (laughs) Great.
0: Thank you. It kind of leads me into a a question. A lot was made out, Henry, of the uh, East-Midwest-West rivalry on the Olympic teams. Um, Did did that exist on the 72 team? Because there was a fair split between Minnesota boys and uh, guys from out East. Uh, What was your experience on that 72 team?
1: Well, it was – it was good. We had one guy by the name of Dick McGlynn and he's, uh, I think he's a mayor of Medford. He's a lawyer now, but, uh, you know, he kind of was a practical joker, talked all the time and kind of kept everybody loose. And, um, uh, you know, so, you know, we had she, he, and then we had Hoffer was our captain and, and we had lefty, lefty Curran. um, you know, so some of the older guys that uh, you know were were good leaders, kept everybody in check. You know, we uh, you know we had our times and stuff, but uh, and a lot of laughs. But you know, it was uh, it was good. It uh, we didn't have that rivalry like they did in the you know in the eighty team.
0: Yeah, I think some of that eighty rivalry was pent up uh, dealings between the alleged. Uh, what the animosities between uh, Boston University and gopher, the Minnesota Gophers. I, I think there's still people out east. I've read Mike Ruzioni's book, and he claims that there was uh, intention by the poor little gophers to go out there and, and take it to those terriers. And uh, it, I think it's gonna depend on who you listen to and how accurate they are now this many years later.
1: Right, and that's what it boils down to is somebody's opinion, so. You know, I I just uh, let those things slide and form my own. There but, you go. You know, Herb uh, did a masterful job uh, containing those guys and and motivating them, and you know, it was great. You got he, the opportunity. He, 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 opp- he, he, he used everything that Tarasov used in his training and stuff. Uh-huh. And
0: it uh, it looks like if I'm correct, the uh, you got the chance to play with Mark Howe. Um, I'm assuming that's Gordy Howe's son on the '72 team. Could you tell that he was going to develop into the player he did in the NHL?
1: Yes. Yeah, he was. God, he was only 16, you know, when he played with the Olympic team, and he uh, he you know didn't play full time. He played. Part of the time, but when he was out there, you know, he could he could really motor, and um, he had a great shot, great sense of the game, you know, where the puck was, where the guys were on the ice, and and um, yeah, you could tell he was going to be an all star.
0: You got the opportunity uh, in the 75-76 season to play WHA hockey and NHL hockey. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences and what was going on with the WHA at that time? Uh, Did you have any concerns about getting paid? Because that was a real uh, issue back then with that league, whether checks would make it to the bank and clear or not.
1: Yes, that's what I, you know, I left uh, right around Christmas time. And I was, I think I was the first one to leave, but talent wise, we had, that was probably the best team I played on because we had, you know we had shaky wall we had Dave Kean pie mckenzie mike antonovich um i mean we had some we had some good players we had great defense rick smith we had good goaltending john garrett and lefty and um we were we were losing six nothing down in in uh, phoenix one night and uh and we came back and scored seven goals in the third period to beat them. It was just we just turned it turned it up, and you and you could you know, um, it was it had some great goal scorers and uh, you know just contain the the forwards. Our, our defense was was pretty good, kept everybody wide. So, um, <laughs> but I I you know there was always that concern. You know we drew around ten thousand eleven thousand people. And then we had Brackenbury and Jack Carlson on that team and shit. Nobody's gonna mess with anybody, you know. It was um you know, we had some pretty good fighters and stuff on there.
0: It was a different era of hockey back then, and I know that the Saints had certainly had a following and what wasn't Glenn Sonmore was he a coach for the Saints or was he just one of the coaches in In the WHA
1: Harry Neal was coach Uh, Glenn was our general manager and uh, I remember they went into Hartford um, he started all the fire fighters on the on the same line he did the same thing in Boston when the North Star when he was coaching with the North Stars you know you could get guys who scored 40 50 goals but he'd rather have Jack Carlson out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh I, I remember those days with the uh, the Carlson fan club at the Met Center with the oh. uh, the glasses and the the nose and and Jack with wearing the the Stan Makita cheese dome helmet uh, that he had <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> a dip, a different era. I, Can you tell us a bit about uh, your books and movies projects that you've got going on, uh, Henry?
1: Okay. In 1992, I was raising my family up in Warroad and uh, I had joined USA Hockey and National Hockey League and their diversity program along with Willie O'Ree and uh, Lou Vero and uh, Gary Bettman and, you know, put all this whole thing together. And we were – doing um uh inner city stuff with hispanics the indians the uh uh, the blacks uh, you know hockey's for everybody and did that from um, 1992 through
2: 2008
1: and uh that same year we were as indian olympians native american olympians i was Invited down to Albuquerque during the national, uh, uh, the uh, gathering of the nation's powwow. There were there were ten Native American Olympians, and there was only four of us living. And that was me. I was the youngest one in '72. Then there was Billy Mills, and, and uh, in '64 when he won the 10,000 meter in Tokyo. Then there was Buster Charles, who who uh, won a gold medal in basketball after the war in 48 in London. And then there was Jesse Rennick, who ran in the 32 games. He was 96 years old. So I was really excited. I never even thought about how this all came into light. You know, I mean, I never really thought about Native American Olympians before. But after that, after visiting with them and hanging out with him for a weekend, I thought somebody has to do a documentary series on these Native American Olympians. That was a great idea then, I still do, we're working on it now, um, but it takes time. You know, here I am in Warroad, you know, raising my family, I'm, I'm coaching up there, I'm Indian Ed Director Ward Public Schools, I'm selling real estate, um, you know it's uh it was just too busy and i didn't have any resources to speak of you know it's 350 miles down here um and i really didn't have the time to run around and meet with different people about this project although i met with some and they thought it was a great project but they didn't have the passion i did for it so uh i just let it ride but it was always in the back of my mind and um after my youngest son graduated from high school in 2006, uh, Willie O'Ree and I were doing a hockey school up in uh, up in uh, Wasilla, north of Anchorage. Called Willie up and I said, hey, let's talk Dick Heron, who was a lawyer up there, into doing a diversity program hockey school up there. I said, he's got lots of money, he'll fly us up there. We can go fishing for 10 days. You know, have a good time. and." So we did that, we did hockey school during the day and we took a couple of days out where We took kids fishing and, you know, caught these 25-pound salmon and it was a good time. And uh, I ended up uh, moving up there in 2007, so I was up there on and off for seven seven years. But I needed a story, so I, that's when I wrote the book. I, I I was just gonna write a story for the film, you know, like the story and then do the script and. And uh, I thought, what the hell, I'm just going to do a book, but where do I start? So I started with the with the spirituality of the Ojibwe. I talk about the migration of the Ojibwe over a 500-year period from the East Coast coming into the Midwest and Canada as well. And, uh, and then I just didn't want to make it a hockey book. I wanted to tell the story of on my mother's side, how the Ojibwe's migrated and up on Lake of the Woods, and uh, and then my dad's side, they came from uh, uh, Nobinway, Michigan, which would be in the UP, and that's when they were putting the railroad from east to west and made it into Kenora. So they and they were building it west, so that's why you have Treaty One, Treaty Two, Treaty Three up there. So. Um, there were some guys that from Lake of the Woods are opening up Lake of the Woods for fishing. They're opening it up for timber, so they came down and talked to my my great-grandpa about coming up there. He had lost his wife the year before, and he had a couple of sons. So they went up and and uh, ended up staying up there. And they uh, were boat builders, carpet uh, carpenters, and lighthouse keepers, and they Had uh, timber booms pulling it into Canara, and uh, you know fish camps all over the place up there. So, uh, and they really didn't know how to gillnet fish up. They were they were gillnet fishing down in Lake Michigan there. So that's how my either my other arm ended up there, and and my mom's side uh, actually moved to Warroad and Buffalo Point, which is just across the border in Manitoba. So my mom and dad got married in 1932 and, you know, continued to commercial fish with, uh, in a Buffalo, on Buffalo Bay there. And, um, and, but, you know, and then how we ended up moving into Warroad and my dad would pull a boat up on the, on the beach in Warroad on the sand beach and with a tractor. And, and then he would trap in the, fall, and then cut pulp in the wintertime, and then fish all summer, but I wanted to put all of that in there, the the development of that whole area, but not only, you know, just a a good hockey movie, but I wanted to say, hey, I used all hand-me-down skates, shit, they were, I had to stuff newspaper in the toes, and wear about three, four pairs of socks, and they, you know, and, and they were still loose, but you just uh, skated down on the river and or in the ditches and stuff like that, and that's how we played. And I don't know where road hockey came from, but and those guys, Billy and Roger, you know, they were playing road hockey, you know, back in the 30s and 40s.
0: Henry, we've had discussion with Pat Kelleher, who's the executive director of USA Hockey, and we're looking forward to talking – uh, with Doug Palazzari uh, at the U.S. Hockey Hall. Uh, can you tell us, uh, because it's so important for USA Hockey, uh, about the, and it's not just USA Hockey. I think it, it, it touches hockey everywhere, including uh, Canada. Can you tell us how you're continuing to help grow diversity and inclusion in the sport of hockey today?
1: Well, I'm... <clears throat> I'm the vice president of the National Coalition Against Racism in Sports and Media, so we advocate for, you know, uh, you know, our students, our, our, our Indian community throughout the United States. Basically, uh, you know, we talk about uh, the Washington Redskins, and you know, at at the colonization of the United States, they started putting bounties on. Indians. And they said, well, if you get kill an Indian, we'll give you five bucks. And they would haul their bodies in on these ox carts, and there was too cumbersome. So they said, well, just bring us the heads. And then after a while, they said, just bring us the scalps. And as they were scalping these men, women, and children to get their bounty, all of the blood ran down, a lot of the blood ran down their face, and they called them redskins. And that's where that term comes from and that's why we uh got rid of the name and you know we we have to stand up for our youth you can't have somebody drunk at a game with a red face with turkey feather headdress on drunk and it scares our kids our grandkids you know they're going Jesus, look at that guy you know and they don't want to they don't want to be there and uh so those are the types of of situations that we try to address: the names, the logos. Uh, there's still a ton of them out there, you know, high school wise, uh, college wise. Uh, we're working with the Cleveland Indians now. We're working with we work with the Vikings uh, in in lieu of the the uh, Washington Redskin name working with the Atlanta Braves, um, Kansas City Chiefs, and uh, unless you justify like Waro did, you know when we battled the Sioux for this pro- for this area, so we're called the Waroed Warriors. Here's the difference: we battled the Sioux, and we have our blood on that land, and we talk about we talk about. Uh, you know, commitment. We talk about fighting for something that you believe in. The rice fields, the, you know, the uh, the food on the water is why we migrated. Um, and the stories that came out of, out of those battles and the proud name. And one of our chiefs, in fact, it was T.J. Oshie's great, great, great grandfather who actually sold some of the land to the school in 1915 up there and said, we would like, if you're going to have a school name, we would like the name World Warriors in honor of the bloodshed here for this land. So you take the Washington Redskins, they don't have that background. You see what I mean?
0: Yes, yes, sir. And it's... You know, it, it's a changing time, and it's still, I think, you, you and I chatted before we uh, got on this podcast a, a week or so ago, and, and it's something that I think that it's going to take time, uh, you know, a, a more time than some people would like it to, but the, the hopes are that things will continue to move in the right direction.
1: And well, it's also, le- You know, it's learn at the kitchen table. You know, racism, discrimination, prejudice is at the kitchen table when the kids listen to their parents talk about this one, talk about that one. You know, it's a learned process. So we can try to unlearn it. You know, you're not born that way. I, I completely so,
0: agree, Henry. It, it's something that I taught, I talked to you about my daughters. Both my daughters are adopted. And uh, when they were born, they don't know color. They don't know hate, they don't know love. They don't know anything. And you yeah. have to teach them. and uh my goal was to try to give them an open mind so that they could uh be educated and, and make good decisions for themselves as they grew older
1: absolutely and most most kids are are pretty good there's a few that um uh, that need a lesson yep
0: just like just like some of us adults need some lessons every now and again yeah henry can can you share um as we get to the end of our our session here, can you share a little bit about uh, Minnesota NHL alumni and uh, your activity with that organization?
1: Well, you know, it's, I think we have about 60 players here uh, living in the area, which is pretty good. A lot of, a lot of us are getting older, you know, and, and, and some of the new, newer players that are playing with the wild and stuff, and they really that retired or Choose to live here are, are really not getting involved, and you know we never made the money that these guys are, are making, and you know sure, we all have to work and slave away. And uh, but you know we we really having a problem trying to get these guys more involved with it. And and most of the players that you know my age don't don't even skate anymore. But <clears throat> we do have a pretty good faction that uh, um, maybe. You know 10, 10 12 players that actually rotate and skate and pick up a few other players but you know there's golf tournaments there's um um you know celebrity games there's uh you know we're trying to um uh you know stay involved with the with the community it's it's been hard this year there hasn't been much going on with uh the covid and uh with the season and uh, so, um, but we try to fundraise for different communities throughout, uh, for their good causes, whether it's hockey, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, health or, or education or something like that that we donate back to. So, and everybody tries to, you know, it's a good feeling to be out there and try to, you know, participate and, and be present. You know, even though you don't do much, if you're present at one of those things, it it helps out a lot, even.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to have one last question, or it might be two questions. I reached out to Dennis Hextall, uh, another former North Star, former Red Wing. uh, And we we have a huge Red Wing fan. Ben, uh, who produces these podcasts, uh, is a huge Red Wing fan. Can you touch a a little bit? Did did you get a chance to play with uh, Dennis and what was your time like with the Red Wings?
1: Well, I, I, uh, I was drafted in 71, but remember I was in the army, so I couldn't sign. I had to wait a year and it was good because I was able to play in the Olympics but because I was in the army, um, when I went to Detroit, it was the last 16 games of the 71, 72 season. And Gordy had retired earlier that year and he was, you know, they really didn't give him anything to do. He was kind of the PR department and, so he kind of took me under his wing and I worked in his hockey school with Mark and Marty and Bugsy Watson and up in St. Clair Shores there. We had a good time and and, um, and that's that summer later on that uh, uh, Gordy ended up signing with Houston with Mark and Marty, um, there's a big loss for Detroit. They should have just been over backwards for him. But anyway, um, it was uh, you know it was different playing um, you know coming from the Olympics, and it's it's like playing in, well. It's a tournament, so you're up you're up for these games, and uh, when you when you have to play and consistent night after night after night and travel and you know it's different you have to adjust to that and um it was uh it was a little bit different i i played on line with red berenson and billy collins we were the checking line for detroit so we started every game against the lamar line and makita line and look that's line and Rattel and the French connection and all, chasing those guys around all the time. So, you know, the stats didn't look that great, but and we got the job done. I thought we should have made the playoffs and they only had, you know, they only had two divisions. They had, the the Eastern Division was New York, Boston, Buffalo, Toronto, um, Detroit, and you had to be in the top four, so only eight teams made it. There were only fourteen teams when I played, so um, it was uh, it was disheartening. We could end up in second place in the other division, so it uh, didn't make any sense to me at the time. But um, I enjoyed my. It, it was one of the greatest sports kind of ever played in Detroit, and uh, when I got traded over here. Hexdal was here, so um, so I got to play with him over here for that, well, half a year, I guess, after my eye injury. I played a couple of games after that. I can't even believe they, they asked me to come out and play. I couldn't even see out of that eye in uh, extreme double vision, you know. Um, but the players, are, you know, the teams that I played against, I thought were pretty gentlemanly. Because, I, you know, when I'm kicking around trying to find the puck in my feet, I could have been leveled a couple of times, and they just kind of stopped. And, yeah, you know,
0: that, that, that was – we, we didn't touch on that topic much, and I, I didn't know whether that was something you wanted to expand on or not. I was in the building that day um, when that happened, and uh, it was tragic to me from a standpoint of a Minnesota um, hero uh being attacked and just uh, i wasn't a big fan of the bruins because they're the big bad bruins at the time and that really just further further increased that uh tension and just what what you went through i I can't even fathom henry it was it was a sad day
1: yeah it you know took a long time to get over with and didn't have any help from the from the players association or the league, you know, um, Clarence Campbell came down and sat down and did interviews and wrote everything out in longhand. Took us a week, you know, for him to interview everybody. But the thing about it was then is that Gary Flackney from the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, you know, said, um, Mr. Campbell only suspended him for 10 games. And if you, you know, it was on TV, Bank in Boston, it was on TV here in the Midwest and sold out crowd. And if if you hit somebody like that with a stick on the street, you'd probably get one to three years plus a $5,000 fine. And um, so that's why he um, charged Forbes with uh, aggravated assault and um and it was you know kids watching that it's going to be okay it's okay if i i do that in my youth game because i don't have to take the responsibility and that's where the helmets came from and the math um, all that stuff but that was his point resulted in a hung jury there were 12 jurors 10 for conviction one abstained and one said no, so they didn't want to retry it.
0: Yeah, I, I think my dad actually got uh, brought in as a witness to describe the dimensions and, and such of the rink. Um, but that that's still still um, lives in my memory. Uh, certainly not to the level that uh, it does in yours. Well, H- Henry, I want to thank you very much for your time today for for coming. Um, and spending time on our podcast. We want to thank everyone for listening in to another episode of ask the Zamboni experts podcast, have a question for one of our experts or an idea for a future episode, please email your questions or request to info at Zamboni.com for more info and additional podcast episodes, please visit Zamboni.com forward slash podcast or search, ask the Zamboni experts on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts and Spotify. This is Doug Peters, along with Marty Elliott, wishing you an ice day.